Numbers 32. If you've got your Bible, please open there. If you don't, there are plenty of Bibles back on the bookshelf. Numbers 32, picking up where we left off from Wednesday night and continuing on through this this trek. Again, no longer in the wilderness, no longer Bamidbar, but now we are out of the wilderness just across the Jordan. So close, so close to the promised land. And you're going to have to wait until Joshua to actually get in there. Uh, Lord willing, we won't even be here. But... uh, Numbers 32, verse 1, now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Hatzair and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adorot, Divon, Hatzair, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sabam or Shabam, which sounds kind of like a 50s tune, doesn't it? Shabam, Shabam. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Nebo and Baon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now, we're going to pause right there. We're going to go a bit further into the chapter. But I I want to start by telling you that I do not get them. I don't understand them. I don't like them. I don't want to play them. And I fully accept that I am the problem. I'm talking about Catan. Now, anyone, if you've ever played this game, it was previously known as Settlers of Catan. I think that before that, it was previously known as the artist named Prince. I'm not sure. But, but the game, Settlers of Catan, now called Catan, it's a very popular board game, first published in Germany in 1995, and it spearheaded this whole new genre of settling, trading, building, developing, resourcing games. You sit around the table, you open up the game, and man, you got to think and strategize and plot and get ahead of everyone else on the table, and I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. My oldest son lives for this. My, my oldest daughter loves this. In fact, most of my kids can sit down and just play right through, and they just have a great time where I'm, where I'm going, what, what, I had to trade that? that? I needed to put that card down to get that resource so then I could build that wall? <laughs> Games like that, it makes Monopoly, which I consider strategic, to look about as strategic as Kerplunk. I don't like these games. If you invite me to a game board night, stick me over on the table that has the game of life or or maybe dominoes. But I'm just not into settler games. And you know what? Neither is Jesus. Let me say it again. Jesus is not into settler games. I'm not talking about Catan or all those many games. Jesus is not into settler games. Games and far too many people play settler games and invite Jesus to come play their settler games with them. Shift gears with me a little bit here. Can you imagine going through what the the, the, the Israelites have gone through in the wilderness the last 40 years that we've studied, we've looked at, we've walked it out with them, obviously haven't experienced what they did, but can you even for a moment think about going through all that they have, coming up to the Jordan River, looking across and going, you know what? This side of the Jordan's good enough. 
Can we just stay here? Are you kidding me? Yeah, this, this is good land. It's all we really need. You know, it's got everything here. Our livestock are happy. So can we just stay here and they settle? They settle. You ever hear someone talk that way? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm a good person. Got all I need. And they settle for this life. Maybe the leaders of Reuben and Gad, let's cut them a little bit of slack, but maybe they looked across the Jordan River and they figured, well, it doesn't look that different on that side than it does on this side. Ever hear someone say that about the church? They don't do anything different than we do. So where's the promise? Where's the difference? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, just as it is written, and by the way, it is written in Isaiah 64, verse 4, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you can look across the river and you still have no idea what is in that land of promise. You don't have any clue what God has really prepared Years of going through the Bible, many of us together, I can tell you, we still are clueless wonders when it comes to what the, the heavens are going to be like. Even the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom is just going to be here on earth, right? Yeah, and we have no idea how perfect and awesome a life that will be. And by the way, that's the problem with churches that refuse to teach through the book of Revelation. What's the problem? They never get to chapters 21 and 22. They never hear about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. Now, I don't say that with judgment, but I do say that with warning. When you don't look at where we're going, you tend to settle. Lots of churches are settled for the here and now, for this experience, for living today, and not even considering what may be out ahead of us. But again, cut Reuben and Gad a little more slack. Maybe they're just worn out. Maybe they're just tired. It's, it's been a long journey after all. And, and Reuben was down in population. If you compare the numbers from when they left Egypt to when they arrive here in the plains of Moab, they're down 2,700 men. So they've, 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 there's some attrition there. Gad was down 5,100 men. And also remember that what's happening here in Numbers 32 is talked about immediately after the battle with Midian. So maybe the idea of having to go into the land and fight all these different peoples was just too much to consider, too much work, too wearisome to have in mind, and so they settled. They settled. What's funny to me is their primary excuse, primary excuse throughout the chapter is their livestock. And you see, they, they, they use the word twice in verse 1, twice in verse 4. They use it again in verse 16. They use it again in verse 26. Livestock, 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 six times. Six is the number of a man, and that tends to be the focus, our stock. What we have here, our livelihood. They settled. Livestock, the, the word livestock is mcnay. And nickname means domestic animals. So we're talking about their cows and their sheep and their goats, etc. And in all these verses, they, they keep bringing this up. Verse 1, 4, 16, 26, over and over and over. We've got livestock. Hey, we've got livestock. Moses, did you have, we have, do you know that we have a lot of livestock? 
And what's really funny is that when you get over into Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 19, Moses says to them, with, I believe, a very dry wit, your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities which I have given you. I get it, you have livestock, okay. So they settled. They settled. There are four problems with settling that I'd like to consider this morning taking these first several verses in chapter 32. And number one, number one problem with settling is it discourages the fellowship. The discouragement of the fellowship. The discouragement of the fellowship. Look at verse six. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? Why are you discouraging them? Even by bringing this up, you're bumming your brothers and sisters out. That word discouragement, tenu'un, is translated to hinder, to frustrate, or to restrain the heart. Why are you restraining your brothers and sisters? Now, if I was in Reuben, or if I was in Gad, or if I was one of the leaders, I'd say, this isn't about them. I mean, no, they can go. No, go ahead. Be there. Be involved. Do your thing. I'm not, this is me. This is my own personal stuff. Listen, it doesn't take much to restrain another person's heart. You don't have to do much. You just don't have to do anything. And that in and of itself can discourage another person from following on. Just pause. Just, just stay back. Just withdraw a little bit or quit. You know what the number one question is, and back me up on this, Jake. Number one question teenagers ask when you present to them that there's a summer camp or a retreat. The number one question, who's going? It's not where are we going. It's not what are we doing. Those follow very quickly. It's never how much it costs. That's mom and dad's problem. <laughs> who's going? Are you going? Are you going? I'm not going. Oh, well, she's not going. I'm not going. Well, if he's not going, I'm not going if she's not going. That's all you have to do. What's really funny to me is I get the same thing with our adults in our Israel trip. Oh, I'd love to sign up for Israel. Who's on the list? Who cares? I'm on the list. <laughs> Paul, I got I to share this. So Wednesday night, I won't say your name. So Wednesday night, we have Roni coming. And, and Paul and Marie love Roni, and they know him and have met him from, from previous trips. And, and they say, oh, man, well, we have to be here. Not that we wouldn't be here for you, Rick. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm here every week. No, it's not about that. But, but this idea that we, there, there is something to our human relationships that says, if he's going, I'd like to go. But if she says, you know, I'd really like to stay on this side of the river. It is discouraging to those who are preparing to cross. We have to get out of our own mind. I am so preaching to myself right now. We have to get out of our own mind and what's best for us and start thinking about what's best for the rest of our fellowship. We, we think too much in a box that our personal decisions really aren't going to affect other people. And obviously there are some decisions we make that we know will have a big effect on others, but some we just think, I'm just not going to do this one thing, or I'm just not going to be involved here, or I'm just not going to you know, really show up for that. And I'm not talking about church attendance, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about living a life of faith, and when we decide, I'm stepping back from that for a season, I just need a break, we never think about how many people that discourages in their own walk with the Lord. 
That's why the Lord calls for his people to encourage, not discourage each other. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3, great verse. You ought to memorize this one. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. And that doesn't mean you come up behind a brother or sister, pat them on the back and say, hey, buck up. Get going. God loves you. See ya. (laughs) Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. By the way, do you know what the context of that encouragement is in Isaiah? Let me take a running start to it. Isaiah 35 verse 1 The wilderness and the desert will be glad because the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and will rejoice with rejoicing and with shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. How can you encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble if you're not encouraging them to go into the promised land? to go for the kingdom. If you don't even know about the kingdom yourself, how are you going to encourage other people to do the same or, or, or to move forward and go in? And so that, that's why this, is, this whole kingdom thing, this whole revelation thing, end times thing, this is why it's such a big deal in our teaching. And as we go through the Bible, it's not because we're all hung up on prophecy. It's because how can I encourage you to go forward in this life if I'm not telling you where it is we're going? If we're not focused on that, that goal, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Why? Because the kingdom is just over the Jordan. It's right there. I was asked this past week, what do you say to someone who thinks they can follow Jesus apart from the fellowship of believers? So let me put a fine point on this. Absence makes the heart grow weaker. Absence makes the heart grow weaker. And it opposes our our, our, our calling as followers. We are called to encourage each other. We are called to consider how living our life will impact other people around us, not to discourage, but to, again, encourage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. He says in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Does that not sound like a group of people moving forward together? Or Romans chapter 15, verse 4, where Paul says, whatever was written in earlier times, that is Numbers 32, what we're studying this morning, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only change I might make in that last verse is I would say, so that with one odyssey, you may with one voice glorify that. Because I think there's more room in a Honda Odyssey than in a Honda Accord. But other than that, just seeing if you're with me. Did he say he'd change a verse? What verse was that? I'm just making a joke, folks. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something we are called to do together. 
Not to discourage, but to encourage. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is that one purpose? It's being with Jesus. That's our goal. He's the point. And he's just across the river. It's all about us encouraging each other in the walk of faith. And this is obviously something that Reuben and Gad hadn't even thought about. They hadn't considered it. That they were already, already, just because of the talk amongst yourselves, before they bring this up to Moses and Eliezer, they're already discouraging other tribes as word gets out that, hey, did you hear that Reuben and Gad might not cross? Did you hear they're talking about just staying here? Well, if they don't go, why do we have to go? Why should we bear the brunt of all this? The discouragement of the fellowship. Secondly, note verse 6 again. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? The discouragement of the fellowship. Secondly, the abandonment of the fight. Settlers abandon the fight. Settlers leave the fighting to others. Now, we learned several things, and I won't go over them all. I originally had them in my notes. I pulled them out, but, but they're there. We talked about these seven things about the fight on Wednesday night and the fight of our faith, and what does that look like? We went through five or six different things, and you can probably come up with more, but this crack squad of 12,000 of the Israelite defense forces, they go up against Midian. They wipe Midian out, that foe of Israel. And so we learned all these things about what fighters do. And the last one is the one that has just stuck in my mind all week long. I keep coming back to this again and again. It's super simple, but listen to it. It is that the fighters are the saved. We could put it another way. The fighters know they are saved. Well, that's kind of a no-duh, Rick, obviously, right? Hey, listen, what I'm saying is we fight from a not just from a position of strength, we fight from a position of salvation. Kill me on the battlefield, I'm already saved. I have nothing to lose, everything to gain. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith, faith is the victory. So I'm talking to Christopher yesterday, and he says, Dad, I have to have two verses memorized for church tomorrow. Can you give me two verses? And I said, sure. So I gave him a couple of different verses. He kept going, no, too long. No, too long. <laughs> I finally got down to Jesus wept, and he said, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> this was one of the verses. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If you want to know what the other verse is, <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. I just wanted to see what they would do. <laughs> so I'll find out from Christopher this afternoon what the reaction is to that one. <laughs> hey, it's, it's Bible. So anyway, <laughs> we surge forward, we fight, and we go forward because we've got nothing to lose, everything to gain. See, that's what I call pressing your advantage. The advantage is you're already saved. But if I abandon my post, if I sit on the sidelines, if I retire from the fight, what does that do to my brothers and sisters in arms? 
Forget about what it does to you. Forget about the fact that maybe the the fight isn't as strong as it might have been if you were there. What does that do to your comrades at arms, if you will? Those who are in the fight with you and suddenly you bow out and they're, oh, okay. We're going to go fight it. I mean, do they need that? Do they need the slightest bit of discouragement when we abandon the fight? Moses' concern is all of Israel. Is our concern all the church? I confess to you, sometimes it's not. Talking about mine. It's a tough one. as, as, As a pastor, I confess, it's not always this church that's first and foremost on my mind. Should be. God's people, and not only our fellowship, but the fellowship of believers throughout the world ought to be first and foremost, and yet there are often times where I'm, you know, down in the weeds, Jake said we don't use the word reconcile. They disagree. We reconcile our checkbooks. We reconcile our finances, or not, you know, oftentimes. Three cents. Three cents! Where's the three cents? I can't find, I can't reconcile it. <laughs> By the way, the great thing about reconciliation, he always reconciles. You're never short a couple of cents. So the, the idea of the discouragement of the fellowship, when you settle, or when you settle, the abandonment of the fight, Moses has another concern. Number three, the entanglement of the sins of the fathers. Continue on, verse eight. Moses says, this is what your fathers did. Moses is now having a flashback, PTSD from Kadesh Barnea. This is what your fathers did. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, for they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, and they discouraged the sons of Israel, so they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And so the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward will see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and they did not follow me, or for, they did not follow me fully. There were people at Kadesh Barnea 40 years before this who settled, who settled. And Moses is reliving that pain. And then, of course, in verse 12, he says, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. Following Jesus fully does not end with my confession of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I take him as my Lord and my Savior. Well done, good. You have just taken a baby step. You're saved. You're saved in him by his grace Nothing you can do to add to or take away from that has nothing to do with your salvation. You have now entered into the saved. But what then? What then? Will you follow Jesus fully? Following Jesus fully, following God fully, didn't end for Joshua and Caleb there at Kadesh Barnea. No, what's marvelous is in Joshua chapter 14 and 15, Lord willing, we'll see this. At the young and tender age of 85 years old, mad dog Caleb moves into the hill country of Hebron to fight giants by choice. Give me the hill country. I'll take them on. And he drove out the giant sons of Anak at 85. He was not done 40 years earlier. So that tells you. Caleb was 45 years old when they spied out the land. 40 years later comes into the land and now, and now, 
right? Now we can really get down to the business of fighting giants. What do you do at 85? What do you do at 75? What are you doing at 65 or 55 or 45? I mean, it goes all the way down. What are you doing right now? We are called to fight to our final breath on the earth. We talked about this on Wednesday night. I said, till I'm six feet under or 30,000 feet in the air. And of course, then Deb comes up to me afterwards and she says, you know why the dead in Christ rise first? I said, why, Deb? They have six feet further to go. And I added, yeah, if they were cremated, well, that means they need time to get their molecules together. So, (laughs) you know, I understand. Here's a good prayer to pray. Lord, hold my molecules together until I have fought the good fight. And you're sitting here this morning, guess what? Fight's not over. It's not over. Fight on. You keep going. Verse 13, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel, Moses continues, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had, gone, who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place. You might want to underline that. In your father's place a brood of sinful men to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. The entanglement of the sins of the fathers. You guys are doing the same thing that your fathers did. Israel, the next generation, is no different than Israel. The first generation, you're settling. You're giving up, you're giving in early. It's the sins of the father. Remember how the Bible tells us and tells us often, God says that uh, I will visit the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, of those who love me, thousands of generations, but of those who hate me, I'm going to visit to the third and the fourth generation the sins of the fathers. And what he's saying is I'm going to come to every generation and see, are you following me or are you following your fathers? Are you doing what they did or are you trusting in me fully? Are you following after me? Good news, biblically, Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, the person who sins will die. By the way, in Ezekiel 18, it also, the Lord also says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's not vengeful. He doesn't look forward to killing off people who disagree with him. That's not his pleasure. But he says the person who sins will die. And then he says this, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Notice I pointed myself as the righteous example. Did you see that? Okay. <laughs> the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. In other words, it is, it is between you and the Lord, but there is an entanglement of the previous generation. Just because my father sinned doesn't mean I am apt to sin or I must sin, but I can get entangled in that stuff real quick, real easily. The impact, the environment, what I saw, what I learned. And isn't it amazing, those of you 40, 50, 60 years old, isn't it amazing how you look in the mirror some days and you go, whoa, that's my dad. (laughs) Or you do something, say something to your kids and go, wow, that's my mom. The entanglement of the previous generation is, is inescapable. The entanglement of their sins, however, is escapable by Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, think about that cloud of witnesses. It is filled with people who came out of dysfunctional homes. 
and yet decided to follow Jesus. And we're surrounded by that. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Verse 15, and so Moses continues, for if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. You're going to destroy your brothers and sisters if you do this. If you settle, you hurt them. You're going to discourage them. You're abandoning the fight and you're going to be entangled in the sins of your fathers. Man, I feel for Moses at this point. He's 120 years old. Now, by my measure, at 120, you're allowed to take a breath. You're allowed to settle back just a bit. 120 years of serving the Lord, of following, leading this people for the last 40, from 80 to 120. He's got to be tired in the trek. At what point do you just get fed up? What's interesting is Moses is not so tired here to shrug him off. See, at this point, I would have been like, fine, whatever, settle here. You know? Well, you don't want to go across? Okay, don't go across. We're going. You just pitch your little tents and take care of your livestock, and you'll be fine, and we'll see you. I don't care anymore. But note what Moses does. He, he, he speaks the truth in passionate love. He doesn't let him off the hook. He says you're going to discourage your fellowship. You're abandoning the fight. You're, gonna, you're entangled in the sins of your fathers. He preaches this powerful, moving teaching to them. All reasons, all potential outcomes of a people who just would rather settle. And Moses at 120 says, don't settle, don't settle. Well, they think about it, and they come back to Moses in verse 16. Then they came near to him and said, we will build here sheepfolds for our livestock. Oh, yeah, they're livestock. There is again. And cities for our little ones. But, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to the place, their place, while our little ones live in fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. So we'll go, we'll get into this, we'll go with you. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. How's that sound? <laughs> Verse 19. We, for we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us. Note that. Our inheritance has fallen to us. This is what God had for us all along. Really? Really? How do you know that? Well, this is our inheritance. Why? Well, because the land is good. Yeah, the land looked really good to Lot, too. And it ended up being Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is death. Oh, but it looks good. This is, this is our inheritance. It's fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. 
That verse is it's a teaching all by itself. That is a study in a nutshell. Be sure your sin will find you out. We've talked about this many times over the years. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure. De'u in the Hebrew means it's, it's, it's a declarative imperative. This is an absolute. Learn this. Take notice of this. Get this. Your sin, my sin, will find us out. Unquestionably, this is an absolute spiritual law. My friends, this is as absolute a spiritual law as gravity is a physical law. Go ahead and try to beat gravity. Go ahead. Take a hop. Until the rapture, you ain't going up. That's the only time we're going to defy gravity. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual or a physical law. Same thing with sin. Same thing with sin. And we really think we can beat it. Every generation comes along and thinks, well, we can learn from their mistakes and we can beat this. We can handle it. We can live this way and not be affected by it. Your sin will find you out. You know what else that means? It means your sin, my sin, is gunning for us. Think of it, personify it for a moment. It, your sin wants to be discovered. It's like the, the one ring in the Lord of the Rings. Remember in the movie, Gandalf at one point tells Frodo, the ring wants to be found. It wants to get back to it. It's always looking for a way to get back to its master. That's sin. It's a great example of sin. It wants to be found. We think, okay, no one knows. It's cool, this is fine. And your sin's going, how can I bring this to light? Your sin will find you out. See, people have a misnomer. They, they, they misunderstand. They think that God is waiting in the shadows to pounce and to punish. Yeah. Any second they step out of line, I got him. No, your sin will find you out. Your sin will reveal itself. My sin will come back up and there, there is no getting away from it. God laid this out so early on. He says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, as Cain is brooding in his heart and he's having murderous thoughts toward his brother Abel. God says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin's just a waiting to pounce. Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. No wonder Moses is alarmed. He's looking at this people. This is not just about land. This is about their hearts. This is about their relationship with God. And they're making a promise here. They're going to come across and fight and help their brothers Israel, get them all settled, and then go back to their land. And if you don't, if there's sin in this, if there's deception in this, it's going to come out. And this whole time, what Moses is pleading for, and it's one of the reasons I love Moses so much, and I'm so impressed by this man in the scriptures, he is pleading for their hearts. Your sin, this, this is going to, this will waylay you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
Moses is very concerned at this point. The entanglement of their father's sins, they seem to be wrapped up in that same old mentality. Settle here and don't go in. But there's one more issue for those who settle. It's the disappointment of the future. The disappointment of the future. The Reubenites and the Gadites are seeding a painful future for their own offspring in the land east of the Jordan River. Because they don't want to go in, because they think it's easier now to stay put. The livestock are well fed. Our people are comfortable. This is easier. Let's just settle right here. They are seeding disappointment for the future. They, first of all, divide themselves from their own people. And it will almost immediately teeter on the edge of civil war. This is remarkable. In Joshua 22, as they're all finished with the battles and the warfare, and they're done, and they head back to the Jordan to cross over, and they make a little altar, just a reminder, a memorial stone for themselves, and they go across, and their brothers on the other side don't know why they made the altar. They think they made it to God. They're incensed. They're angry. They all gather up for war. They're now gathering on this side for war. You almost have civil war before the land is even completely settled. They're not thinking about that. They're not looking down the line at the impact this might have on the 12 tribes of Israel together. And after Solomon, of course, they're going to break away with Jeroboam in that evil exodus and, and form the 10 northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel, dividing the kingdom altogether. They're going to be on that side of things. And of course, in 722 B.C., when Assyria comes in like a flood, along with Dan up in the north, they're the first ones to go. There's no protection. There's no dividing wall. There's no Golan Heights to, as a defensive, uh, you know, wall, if, as you were, if you were, or as it were, between Syria and Israel today. That, that's what the why that's so important. There's there's nothing to divide. So they're already right there, right up against Assyria. Assyria's going to wipe them out, decimate them. Then then Assyria is going to take some of their people and, and intermingle them with Gentiles from all over the place and kind of resettle that area so it becomes a mixed breed of people. And then Babylon's going to come and they're still on the east side of the Jordan River so anyone who's left there amongst that mixed up group, Babylon's just going to overrun them. By the first century, the region that Reuben and Gad saw is so nice and so pleasant and a great place for their livestock, this land would be called the Decapolis, which is the ten cities of the Gentiles. Why? Because they settled. They settled. It's a disappointing future. If they knew all this going ahead, they might say, hmm, maybe we should cross the river. Maybe we should surge forward, but they settled. And there's one more thing. Turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Everybody turn there. You got to see this. So in Mark chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, second book of the New Testament. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. That is Jesus, is the him. And he had his dwelling, this man, among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. 
because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broke in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Which, by the way, keep that in mind when Jesus comes on the scene. This gives you a sense of how powerful Jesus really was. No human being could subdue this guy with his chains and his his demon possession. Constantly night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. And, and I think Hollywood keeps remaking movies. Just do something like this. You got some horror mixed in here. Guy running through the tombs, screaming. You got, I mean, anyway, I don't know. Hollywood's not going to hear me. Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up to him. Now, what would you do? Here comes a naked guy in chains, screaming, bleeding, yelling, out of his mind. What would you do? He runs up to Jesus, and he bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God, do not torment me. By the way, that's the thing about demons. They all believe in Jesus. They don't have faith. They don't entrust their lives to him. They don't follow him. But they believe in him. James 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and shudder. And it was the one thing to bring this guy to his knees was Jesus stepping off the boat. So the guy falls down. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high? For he had, he had been saying to him, so prior to him bowing down, Jesus had already been saying, come out of this man, come out of this man, come out of this man. So he falls down and Jesus was asking him, verse 9, what is your name? Now, Jesus knew his name. I don't know if it was like Bud. I don't know. And Jesus could have named every demon in this man. Jesus isn't asking, what, are you, what is your name? Because he's curious or just needs to know. He's asking, what is your name? Because he, he wants that demon to be named. He wants the name to come out. There's a lot of power in our names. In fact, there's a lot of power in what Satan does in your life, in my life, that is hidden, that is not spoken aloud. And if he can keep it hidden, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion is four to 6,000 soldiers. We're not talking about, you know, a dozen cranky demons. Four to 6,000 legion. And he began to implore him, Verse 10, earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, power. <laughs> okay. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and 2,000 of them, they, they were drowned in the sea do I even need to say it? Swine Lake. <laughs> right? I mean, every time we come to this, but it's so fun. Deviled ham. So you have deviled ham and swine lake, bay of pigs, whatever you want to call it. Verse 14, their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. So the herdsmen are there, and they put two and two together. This guy cast out the demons in this guy, and we lost our bacon. <laughs> Sorry, I'm hoofing it here, I know. I, but just go, you know. <laughs> the herdsmen go, so all the people come, verse 15. And they show up, 
They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. I'll bet they did. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to start an evangelistic crusade and save the region. Would have been a great story. Get out of here. Leave us. It, it was too overwhelming, too frightening. They come out and they see this used-to-be demon-possessed man, clothed, calm, and they freak out. They, they can't handle it. They beg Jesus to leave. And by the way, he did. And that's all it takes. If you don't want Jesus, he's not going to oppress you. You ask Jesus to leave, he'll, he'll respect that. He's not going to run away af afraid. See, the Bible says, submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because he'll, he'll, he'll flee afraid if you're claiming the name of Jesus. He'll run away if you resist him. Jesus doesn't run away, but he'll leave if you don't want him around. They beg him to leave, and so... Jesus does just that. Here's a principle that this brought to mind. And I know these are not the exact same people as, as those of Reuben and Gad, but, but here's the principle. The settled have a hard time understanding Jesus. And I think that's important for us to get. All these other things we talked about, with settling, you discourage others, you abandon the fight, you get entangled in the sins of the fathers. You, you may have a disappointing future if you settle for this for now. But, but the settled have a hard time of understanding Jesus. The settled don't know why he does what he does. The more settled you are, the more doubts are going to creep in, the more unsettled you are going to be by the things Jesus does. Just because you're chilling and not really wanting to... Look, I gave my life to Jesus. I, I, I went to church when I was a kid. It's enough. It's enough. I go once a month. It's enough. You know, I have a Bible on my bookstand. It's, it, it's enough. And you settle. And then someone asks you a hard question of faith or a difficult one of Jesus. Let me just give you a side note on this because I, I, we have time. Wednesday night, we're teaching about the slaughter of Midian. We're teaching about and, and talking about in, in chapter 31 how God commanded for the children of Israel, 12,000, so 1,000 from each tribe, to go up and just wipe out Midian, wipe them out completely. And then when they do that and they come back, they have all the women. And Moses says, why do you have all the women? God said, wipe them out. So they wipe out all the women and all the male children because God wanted it that way. So it's one of those teachings, obviously, that is not real easy <laughs> when you're trying to talk about the love of God and the grace of God, and why would he do that? And if, and if you weren't here Wednesday and you're, you're concerned, go back and listen to it. But here, here's the reason I mention it. So I'm sitting here, and a dear little sister, uh, one of our teens, comes walking in with several friends. And, and I took one look at them, and, and seriously, no judgment or anything, but I just took one look at them, and I went, I'm guessing maybe they're not Bible scholars. <laughs> and they come in and sit down in the second row. Now, if I were choosing the teaching for Wednesday night, I would have chosen something right out of John chapter 3, or maybe the sacrifice of Jesus. I would have gone to one of the Gospels, something you know, where I could talk about the love of God and, and, and his, his reaching out. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's where I would have gone. No, we have the slaughter of Midian. 
I had to explain, and I'm, I kid you not, through the whole teaching, I'm, I, I was in this tug of war going, Lord, I've got to teach your word, but I don't, I don't want to drive them away. I, 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 so I'm thinking, how do I teach this in a way that shows your heart, Lord, and, and, and shows your love, Lord? And the thing is, it's not just the settled. A lot of people have a hard time understanding Jesus. We have a hard time understanding Jesus when we're not in Jesus' word. But the more you're in his word, the more you understand him. So that you can even come to difficult passages like the slaughter of Midian, and you can read through it and go, oh, I see God's heart in this. I understand why the little male children were killed. You might say, Rick, that's still brutal to me. I understand that. But they would have grown, little Midianites grow up to be big Midianites. Who sacrificed to Baal and would have gone to hell. God saved every one of those little children for eternity. Now, I understand that. I can process that because I'm not settled. I'm continuing to walk with Jesus and, I, and the things that he continues to teach, I learn. And then I understand the settled have a hard time understanding. And the more settled, if you allow yourself to be settled in your life, you will find yourself with more and more doubts and more and more questions and more and more difficulty understanding what God's will is or why he's doing it this way or why did that happen. Don't settle. Philippians 3.14, Paul said it so clearly, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There, let us therefore, and I love how he says this, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Well, I'm not perfect. Yes, you are in Jesus. He has made you perfect for salvation and he is perfecting you by sanctification. Let's have that attitude. Let's press on. But then Paul says, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. You can have a different frame of mind. You can be opposed. God's going to reveal that to you. But he says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. In other words, if you want to settle for less, fine, but Paul would say, don't get in our way as we press on. If you settle, understanding Jesus is going to get more and more difficult. Well, verse 18 of this story. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed implored him, or was imploring him, that he might accompany him. Well, who wouldn't? You've saved me. You've cleansed me. I'm in my right mind. Oh, Jesus, all I want to do is be with you. And Jesus goes, no. No. No, he says. He did not let him, but he said to him, verse 19, Go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the one who did this and had mercy on it. Right, right. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, the ten cities, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. My friends, the region of the Gerasenes had another name, more ancient, a Hebrew name, Gadera, Gad-era, Gadera, the region, and, and whether or not, and there's some debate about this, so just, just so you know, be, being completely open here, it's uncertain if the orig origin of that name Gadera actually comes from the tribe of Gad. 
Some think very strongly, yes, it had to, and others aren't sure, but we, we don't have enough information to absolutely say, yeah, it's called Gadara in Jesus' day because that's the region of Gad. But I can tell you what was certain, or what is certain, and that is that this region of Gadara was the home of Gad. It is the exact area on the east side of the Jordan, southern tip of the Galilee, where the tribe of Gad settled. Why is that a big deal? We're talking about the disappointment of the future for this tribe that settled there. And this once Israelite region, this pasture land, ultimately became a pasture land to herds of prohibited pigs. Our livestock, our livestock. Well, now the livestock in the region is illegal by all Jewish standards. What are they raising pigs for over there? Jewish people don't raise pigs. You'd be hard-pressed to find a bacon burger in Israel. I'm just saying. (laughs) This settlement of Israelites. Hey, this is good land. It's great for our livestock. This is where we're going to settle. And they did And now by the first century, it is overrun by Gentiles, Romans, pigs, and demons. And that's the future of Gad, at least to that point. God's got a greater future. But the disappointment of the future, how wonderful is it in that story that Jesus intentionally crossed over into the region of the settlers? See, I love this about the Lord. Just when I'm about to give up on someone who's settled, Jesus goes there. Jesus takes a boat there. He even rescues the unrescuable, this demon-possessed man, who then he sends as an emissary to preach the gospel to the people in Decapolis. And next time, Jesus shows up in the same region. 4,000 Gentiles come to lunch. Mark chapter 8, you can check it out. Because one man got clean and sober and saved. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. It's amazing grace. That's the heart of the Father. Even for what should have been a disappointing future and I can take you even further than that, trail on into the kingdom and guess what tribes are there in the kingdom, tribes of Israel, Reuben and Gad. God's going to get them in even though they settle. Well, then if God's going to get me in even though I settle, consider all the other things we've talked about. Think about what Israel has gone through now for 2,000 years. Think about what Israel has to face according to Scripture if they had not settled. And I'm not just talking about settling on the east side of the Jordan. I'm talking about settling for the Jewish lifestyle rather than surging with their Savior, Messiah. Don't settle. Well, let me finish up the settler story. So back in Numbers 32, verse 24, build yourselves, Moses says, cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep and do what you have promised. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben spoke to Moses saying, your servants will do just as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. While your servants, everyone who is armed for war will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle just as my Lord says. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and told, and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the father's households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. 
Moses said to them, if the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle will cross over with you over the Jordan in the presence of the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not cross over with you, they shall, not have, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. I'm not sure how that would have worked out. But you know, if, they, if they come, they can go back. If they don't come, they're going to come. They have no choice. And then the sons of Gad, verse 31, and the sons of Reuben answered saying, as the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We ourselves will cross over, armed in the presence of the Lord, into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our fathers shall be with us across the Jordan. And by the way, I'm just going to tuck this one in there. So Moses gave to them, to the sons of Gad, to the sons of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of, of Joseph's son Manasseh. And we'll stop there. So now it's not just Reuben and Gad, is it? Now half of another tribe is coming and settling because they settled. Oh, you guys are settling? Cool, I'll settle too. And the impact is felt. Either way, you're going to fight. Note this. He says, if they fight, then they can have this land. If they don't fight, they're going to come fight. You're going to fight either way. Do you realize that? You can say, I'm settling, I'm done, I'm not doing anymore, you're still going to fight. It's just going to be harder. It's going to be more frustrating. It's going to be more difficult. It's going to be more doubt-filled. Will you fight only to settle for less than his full promises? If you're going to fight anyway, might as well fight for the whole thing. Might as well get it all. But, but let me end with this question. Why does Moses, why does Moses, much more God himself, allow these tribes to settle? Why does he allow it? Why is this okay? And I can tell you why. God has never been one to drag somebody into his promises. He's not going to force his love on you. He's not going to force the kingdom on you. And he's not going to force his blessings on you right here and now. Please hear this. He will bless us with as much or as little as we are willing to receive. You want the whole thing? He'll give it to you. You want a blessed life that's radical and wild and amazing and driving through the wilderness and conquering enemies and receiving the blessings of God. He can't wait to give that to you. If you just want to go halfway, then that's all you're going to get. If you don't want to cross over, that's all you're going to get. He wants to bless you as much as you'll receive. And please don't be as superficial as to mistake that for a new car or a new house or a pair of designer shoes. I want the blessings of God, my new property. That's nothing. You're settling. Too many Christians are settling for blessings now when we have been given so much more, the true, the substantive, the spiritual, eternal blessings. Blessed be the God of our Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing at Nordstrom. <laughs> That, that didn't sound good, did it, Susie? You didn't hear her. Susie goes, oh, no. <laughs> Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, far beyond anything else that we've got here. But, but whether because of tradition, and maybe tradition is the problem sometimes, or, or fear of disappointment, well, I don't know, if I ask for that, what if it doesn't happen? How many of you have done that? What if what I'm praying for doesn't come true? 
So you're going to let your doubt or your fear undermine his promised blessings? What about just plain old lack of faith? Some people, what they do instead is they window shop God's blessings. I'll take two, please. Oh, and that one over there. And God's going, okay, you could have the whole store. You could have everything. You, you just want that. Okay, bag it up for him. It's all he wants. Paul said, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to, be, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, far more abundantly. You can't even imagine. I can't even think of. And by the way, I can think of an awful lot. But I can't even think of all the blessings that he has out there that he desires for me, that he desires for you. But here is the sad reality. And please get this. The settler is willing to put down roots for this reason. It's called the permissive will of God. Get this, note this, the permissive will of God. What's the permissive will of God? The permissive will of God is whatever he allows. He, he allows things. He'll allow you to settle if you so choose. He'll allow you to pick two blessings out of the entire store. He'll allow you only to go so far. That's the permissive will of God. That's because he's got so much grace He's just going to continue to pour out grace and to continue to love and, and, and to say, hey, you know what? I love you. you. You chose me. You're settling. You're missing out, but I love you. The permissive will of God. Now, you can live by the permissive will of God or you can live by the perfect will of God. And the perfect will of God is what he has to offer. It's not what you may think you want. It's what he has for you. And it is always far beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. And I'm going to finish with this. Note this. He will love you either way. Surprised? If you settle, he's still going to love you. If you settle, he's going to allow you. He's going to love you either way. But remember this, and you know this verse well. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God underscore this, to those who are called according to his purpose. And remember again what it says of Joshua and Caleb, for they have followed the Lord fully, which means right on up to and into the promised land. Let's pray. Father, it is so overwhelming to me to think about how gracious you are. Hard to describe, really, Lord, we come at it really every week, week in, week out. We come back to the love of God. We come back to the grace of our Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's hard to comprehend it. So you keep coming back and teaching us and showing us in different ways. It's remarkable to me, Lord, that you love me even when I only take that which you allow. That's, that's amazing grace. But, oh, Lord, how much more amazing when you love me into the things that you desire for me. Your will, your perfect will, I pray your perfect will would have its effect on our entire fellowship and that we would be a people here gathered, Father, that are looking for all that you desire, asking you your will in every situation, not content, Lord, to stay on one side of the river, 
Not content in one area of pasture land that seems good to our eyes, but continually asking, Lord, what else? What else? What is your will? What do you desire in this situation? What do you want of my life? And Father, as we ask these things of you, I just pray that you would give our spirits ears to hear and faith to move out when you say cross the river. In Jesus' name. Amen.